Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Among the bills waiting for Governor Ned Lamont's signature is legislation to help Connecticut teens access PrEP, a medication that helps prevent new HIV infections. WNPR's healthcare reporter Nicole Leonard will join us to explain why advocates push for this bill and whether it's likely to be signed into law. That's later this hour. We'll also hear why three Connecticut students are challenging a statewide high school athletics policy. The Hartford Current's Lori Riley will explain the discrimination complaint. That's coming up. First, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have been high over the last week after a string of recent events, starting with oil tanker fires in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, Iran has denied responsibility, despite the U.S. saying it has evidence proving the country was involved. Then on Wednesday, Iran shot down a U.S. unmanned drone, which almost resulted in the U.S. launching a retaliatory strike two days later, until President Trump tweeted he called it off. So what's exactly going on between the two countries, and what will prevent the U.S. and Iran from launching into conventional war? Joining us for more via Skype is Adam Ronsley. He's a reporter for The Daily Beast. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You can also join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. So, Adam, let's start with the uh, downing of this unmanned U.S. drone over the Gulf on Wednesday. Uh, This uh, is not an isolated incident. You've written that Iran has a long history of targeting U.S. drones. Uh, Tell us about uh, that history and why. Yeah, so... um Iran has uh, consistently targeted or messed with or hacked or generally caused mischief with U.S. drones throughout the Middle East. Um, One of the reasons why it does that is for the simple operational reason of uh, Iran conducts a lot of business in the Middle East. It doesn't want U.S. eyeballs on, whether it's um, supporting insurgents in Iraq, supporting insurgents in Yemen, uh, supporting the Assad regime. But um, from a larger point of view, One of the reasons why Iran tends to take its uh, irritation out on U.S. drones is that it's a bit of an escalatory sweet spot in the sense that, uh, you know, if you shoot down a U.S. uh, manned aircraft, um, you've killed a pilot probably. um, And that's going to almost certainly demand a kinetic U.S. military response um, in which uh, Iran is all of a sudden, um, you know, not not in a great strong point to uh, uh, to withstand. so it you know it helps them to be able to demonstrate their anger, demonstrate their capability, do a little bit of signaling without uh, provoking a lot of response. And you've seen that um, you know early on in uh, the Iraq War, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, Iranian back or excuse me, uh, Iranian back militias um, were found by U.S. forces uh, with copies of U.S. drone footage. Uh, recorded by U.S. drones on their laptops. Um, you know, a bunch of militants arrested by uh, U.S. troops go through the laptop. All of a sudden, they find that they've got, you know, copies of, uh, you know, U.S. drones surveilling Sadr City and all these other uh, Shiite hotspots. And the U.S. had no idea how they had gotten them until they realized, 
oh, wow, they had been using a $26 uh, commercial satellite piracy uh, software thing to rip U.S. drone feeds. And that was sort of the early beginning of a lot of this stuff. And then you see it played out, um, particularly in Yemen, um, where the U.S. has been uh, providing a lot of assistance to the uh, Saudi-led coalition at war with the Houthi movement, which is backed by uh, Iran. In 2017, they shot down a U.S. Reaper over um, uh, uh, Sana. And uh, most recently, about a week before the uh, recent uh, incidents, uh, another Reaper was shot down over Hodeidah. And when U.S. Central Command, which is the command in charge of the Middle East, um, released a statement on that. They said it had been shot down with a missile system that uh, U.S. intelligence estimated that uh, Iran had been helping the uh, Houthis increase the altitude, increase the accuracy on. Uh, so you had another Reaper down. Um, and another area where um, Iran has been targeting U.S. drones and harassing them is Syria. Uh, around 2017, there was a lot of tension between the U.S. and Iran and Syria as the ISIS caliphate was collapsing. That was bringing uh, Iranian forces supporting the Assad regime and U.S. forces uh, going after ISIS into a lot closer proximity. And there was uh, kind of a standoff for, you know, who's going to control what territory uh, and who's going to take back what from ISIS. And in the summer of 2017, um, you saw Hezbollah, which is uh, an Iranian-backed terrorist group in Lebanon, uh, put out on a TV channel footage of a U.S. predator drone flying over um, uh, eastern Syria. Uh, and if you looked at that footage of the predator drone flying, it's recorded from very, very, very close up. Um, and the feed markings on the format show that it's being recorded by an Iranian drone, which is itself a copy of the Predator, sort of a, a knockoff uh, Iran's uh, version of the Predator called the Shahed 129. The message being, you know, we could have knocked this thing out. We could have taken this thing out if we wanted to. And about two days later, uh, a Shahed 129 dropped some bombs near U.S. Special Operations Forces in Syria. And then F-15 decided, um, you know, it was time to step in here and uh, the U.S. essentially blew it out of the sky. Um, so, yeah, we've spent about two decades uh, shooting down each other's drones. <laughs> well, given that context, let's talk about uh, the response uh, with this latest uh, um, uh, uh, drone that was shot down um, and with with how uh, Mr. Trump has responded. Um, was it surprising that uh, that he said that they, he was going to have a, a strike and then pull it back? And what is he trying to accomplish there, Adam? Um, it's I mean, it's definitely surprising. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the U.S. has not generally retaliated um, for the downing of uh, spy planes. You know, uh, in the early Bush administration, we had a conflict with the U.S. Or excuse me, uh, we had a conflict with the Chinese um, over uh, a spy plane that went down over Hainan Island after a Chinese pilot got a little bit rough with the U.S. spy plane, uh, crashed. Um, all the pilots, at least on the U.S. side and all the crew on the U.S. side, lived Um uh, way back during the Cold War, uh, the North Koreans shot down uh, an EC-121 and killed everyone on it. President Nixon chose not to respond. Uh, it would have been very surprising if we had chosen to respond to the downing of a drone, um, and particularly because the consequences of um, you know starting a, a kinetic uh, attack on uh, Iran would start to ripple through Iraq, would start to ripple through Syria and cause a lot of headaches. 
So, it, I mean, it was surprising that uh, he initially ordered it. Um, it, at least in his telling of it, um, it seems like a last minute, you know, rethink and pulling them back. I think subsequent reporting has uh, uh, thrown a little bit of a caution flag on some of that, that it may not be quite quite the dramatic rethink uh, moment that, that Trump has uh uh, uh, painted it as, but yeah, certainly a surprising idea that uh, we would, uh, uh, you know, cause at least in what he said was uh, 150 casualties um, uh, for the downing of a drone. Adam Ronzi is joining us via Skype. He's a reporter for the Daily Beast. As we learn more about uh, the context surrounding uh, this uh, drone that was taken down by Iran, a U.S. unmanned drone, and also uh, what this means for the future of U.S.-Iran relations, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, When we keep talking about these unmanned drones, I was wondering if you could explain to us uh, exactly uh, what they look like and their capabilities uh, and the fact that Iran was able to shoot down this Reaper uh, in terms of where it flies uh, in in uh, the, the air traffic, so to speak. Sure. So the one, uh, the most recent one shot down is, is a little bit different. When most people think of drones, they tend to think of Reapers. They tend to think of Predators. They're these iconic, uh, you know, V-tail, uh, you know, bump nose uh, drone shapes. Uh, this one was different. Uh, this was the RQ-4 Global Hawk. And uh, I guess the best way to conceptualize the Global Hawk is there's a constant debate uh, between uh, whether we should stay with the Global Hawk or whether we should uh, stay with the U-2 spy plane, the old U-2 spy plane from the Cold War. Um, They have uh, similar-ish capabilities. Um, And the RQ-4, I guess the best way to describe it visually is imagine um, if you had a beluga whale the size of about a city bus with a V-tail and a very, very large wingspan. These things are massive and they're very, very expensive. They're about $130 million. And they're a lot more capable than the kind of uh, Predator and Reaper drones that we've used. They're they're unarmed. They're not used for uh, any type of strike capability. They're used purely for intelligence. And they fly. They're, they're in a class called HAIL, High Altitude Long Endurance. They can stay up for about 24 hours. Um, and they can cover very, very, very large areas. Um, uh, they have very powerful sensors. They have synthetic aperture radar. They can do ground-moving target indicators, keep a um, you know a, 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 a visual sense of where uh, different moving targets are on the ground. Uh, obviously, they have very powerful imagery, um, and you know that's something to keep in mind because there's you know there's there's a, a a debate between the U.S. and Iran over whether or not the drone was in international airspace um, when it was shot down. You know, at least from an operational point of view, there there would have been no need to fly a global hawk um, over Iranian territory just a few feet um, because its sensors are powerful enough that it could have, um, you know, it, it could have gotten what it needed. And what CENTCOM said it was doing there at the time was it was surveying the area uh, around bandar e which is the area, um, it's a naval base in Iran, and it's where... Um, uh, the recent tanker attacks had gone down. So this was flying a very, very well-known route. Um, this isn't a surprise. This isn't a new thing. Uh, the U.S. flies uh, you know, spy plane routes, whether manned or unmanned, in international airspace along the Gulf all the time. Um, and Iran um, very, very dutifully keeps an eye on it. Um, and, you know, downing it is not a real great feat of technology. Um Iran has claimed that it used its third Cordad uh, service-to-air missile system, which is 
sort of uh, uh, their spin on the book, um, which is the, the missile launcher system that was used uh, to down the MH17 plane in Ukraine, the Malaysian airliner in Ukraine. Um, at least if you uh, look at Newsweek's reporting, uh, Newsweek has reported that the Joint Chiefs of Staff believed it was shot down with an SA-3, which is a very, very old Cold War vintage surface-to-air missile, which was uh, used to shoot down actually the uh, current Chief of Staff of the Air Force. Uh, he used to be an F-117 pilot, uh, and he was shot down over Yugoslavia during the Balkan Wars. Um, and that was an SA-3. But these are, you know, these are uh, whatever missile was used. These are Cold War vintage missiles. Um, these are not uh, amazing feats of technology. Um, you know, the current generation of drones that we have were not really designed to, uh, you know, navigate contested airspace. The, the current generation of drones that we use um, are, are basically the products of a lot of our experience in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we have absolute air superiority. We don't have to worry about enemy aircraft. We don't have to worry about, you know, uh, sophisticated service to air missiles. And the idea that they shot it down is not, you know, it's a political decision. It's not a grand feat of capability. That's why you use drones is because, you know, uh, uh, you don't have to, uh, we, we can always buy another one. Uh, Adam, um, but, you know, this is shooting a city bus sized aircraft moving relatively slow along a, a well-known route uh, with no defensive countermeasures is not, you know, something we necessarily need to be alarmed about. Uh, Adam, uh, given that uh, this these actions are appear to be ratcheted up and, you know, should should traffic in commercial airspace be concerned or, or Ron yeah, knows I mean, what that, they're doing? That's that's one of the things <laughs> I pointed out. So uh, right after the tanker attacks, um, uh, the in the immediate response to the most recent tanker attacks, uh, the U.S. sent a Reaper uh, drone, which is a smaller drone to um, uh, keep an eye on it. And uh, CENTCOM says that uh, the Iranians took a poke at it with a shoulder fire uh, surface-to-air missile, which is, uh, you know, it's, it was an SA-7. It was a very much less capable missile. Still a worry, um, but, you know, the altitude, the generation of the missile, it wasn't that much. And now ratcheting up with the, you know, with either a Buk missile or an SA-3, these are very, very, very dense, um, you know, civilian air corridors. Um, and you may want, you know, you may think, you know, what you're looking at, you may think, you may think you're very confident in what you're targeting, but you know, the history here is not great. Um, in the 1980s, we had another tanker war with Iran. Um, it was a much more intense tanker war where they were actually sinking, uh, tankers. In this case, um, if you, uh, take CENTCOM at its word that, um, Iran was behind these things there, you know, it doesn't look like they're trying to actually sink them, but, you know, in the 1980s, they were definitely trying to sink tankers and they were mining the Gulf, um, and things escalated and things got very, very, uh, hairy. And in 1988, the USS, uh, Vincennes, uh, was mixing it up with some local IRGC forces one day. And it thought it saw an F-14 in the sky, and it launched a surface-to-air missile, and it wasn't an F-14. It was Iran Air 655, a civilian airliner on its way to Dubai with over 200 people. Um, and it knocked it out of the sky, killed everyone on board. Uh, certainly did not do wonders for U.S.-Iran tensions. Um, to give you a sense of uh, how spooked everyone was by it, you know, shortly after that happened uh, was the Pan Am 103 uh, 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 terrorist attack by Libya um, that blew up over Lockerbie. A lot of people thought initially, and incorrectly, but a lot of people thought initially um, that the Pan Am 103 attack had been Iranian retaliation for the Iran Air 655 uh, uh, mistaken missile attack. 
So, you know, these are, you know, and it's a common feature in, in sort of escalatory spirals is like if you look at the, you know, the 1980s with the KAL 007 uh, incident where the Soviets accidentally shot down, well, not accidentally, but, you know, the Soviets mistakenly shot down a Korean airliner um, thinking that it had been a, a U.S. spy plane after the U.S. had been sort of covertly tweaking the Soviets by running spy flights into uh, Soviet airspace. Whenever you're lighting off surface-to-air missiles in, uh, you know, dense civilian airspace, it's just not good for business. You know, this isn't um, Yemen, this isn't Syria, where you have relatively, you know, less civilian air traffic. And uh, what's happened is, is you've seen United um, pull certain routes to India um, because the airspace is a little bit too sporty these days, um, and the FAA has issued a warning. You're starting to see other airlines fall suit. It's just not good for business. <laughs> Adam Ronsley is a reporter for The Daily Beast, joining us via Skype as we talk about uh, the future of U.S.-Iran relations. So, Adam, where is this all going? Uh, would uh, we see these actions happening if uh, the Trump administration hadn't pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, deal a year ago? Um, you know, that, that's, that's a tricky counterfactual. Um, everyone, um, you know, if you talk to uh, Iran scholars, is um, it, it seemed as though the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, um, that his strategy for dealing with the Trump administration had been wait and see. Um, and that it was essentially he's going to wait until 2020 to see if there's another Trump turn before he makes any big strategic decisions about how to respond to U.S. acts like withdrawing from the um, you know U.S. Iran nuclear deal. Um, from what from our reporting and from the intelligence um, uh, that we've been able to report on is that it seems like April was uh, a bit of a turning point for Iran. In April, you saw the U.S. Um, designate the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the um, you know the the sort of premier military force in Iran, uh, as a foreign terrorist organization, and uh, you saw the U.S. Um, cancel. Uh, uh, we we had issued waivers for certain countries to buy Iranian oil without the risk of U.S. sanctions, and we canceled those waivers. And then more recently, um, we uh, slapped uh, sanctions on Iran's petrochemical industry. Um, and from everything we've been able to see is that that seemed like a bit of a turning point for Iran, is that they weren't able to, it, it seemed like the maximum pressure campaign waged by the Trump administration um, had finally gotten to them and that they decided um, that they needed to push back. Um, and this has been their way to push back. And, it, you know, it's certainly interesting. If you look at the most recent tanker attacks, um, uh, it was a Norwegian tanker and it was a Japanese tanker that were attacked. Um, and they were, uh, I don't believe they were fully laden at the time, but they were petrochemical tankers. Uh, so tankers that would normally carry petrochemical products. And it happened on the same day that Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was making a historic visit to Iran and meeting with the Supreme Leader. And the Supreme Leader specifically called out the U.S. petrochemical sanctions during his meeting with Shinzo Abe. So, you know, you could be forgiven for seeing a message in that. Um, and, you know, one of the formulations that Iran has always given is that, like, listen, if we can't export our oil, neither can you. If we can't export our petrochemical products, neither can you. Um, so I think, you know, the JCPOA cancellation certainly has, excuse me, the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal, a joint um, comprehensive uh, plan of action. Um, you know, canceling that certainly hasn't helped. Um, I, you know, I can't say for a counterfactual whether or not we'd be in the same position. 
But certainly the subsequent maximum pressure campaign um, that the U.S. has waged, uh, you know, in the past year since walking away from the U.S.-Iran deal has appears very much to have influenced um, Iran's decision um, that it needed, uh, in its view, to push back against the U.S. We're going to be heading to break soon, uh, Adam, but uh, with uh, the advisors that uh, Mr. Trump has, including John Bolton and uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, you know, what are they looking uh, to see happen? That Iran come back to the negotiating table? And is that likely? Um, you know, I don't think it's very likely. Um, Iran, uh, it, you know, if the, Iran was smart, uh, Trump has been asking them repeatedly to engage in talks. Uh, we know he likes very big ceremonial pomp and circumstance diplomacy. Case in point, look at North Korea. I think if the Iranians took a page out of Kim Jong-un's playbook, um, they'd probably find themselves in a lot better place. But I think it's a lot harder for them to bite their tongues um, and sit down with Trump and do that. Um, it, you know, depending on his advisors, it certainly looks as though uh, John Bolton um, has been at arguing for a much, much, much more confrontational posture. Certainly before he became a uh, national security advisor, uh, he was an avowed regime change advocate. Uh, Mike Pompeo seems to, um, you know, CNN had a really good report um, on the day of uh, the uh, canceled airstrike. Uh, which had a good descriptor for uh, Pompeo is he's pretty good at triangulating is that he, you know, he has a good sense of what Trump's instincts are, which is Trump does not want to get into another big Middle Eastern war, certainly not before the 2020 elections. Um, and that, you know, Pompeo is, is, is very nimble in being able to um, navigate Trump's instincts and, you know, uh, wanting to appear strong and, um, you know, uh, 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 take a hard line, but not necessarily push him into war. Um, you know, if you look at what the U.S. wants on its face, uh, you know, the maximum pressure campaign kicked off with the U.S. withdrawal of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Mike Pompeo gave a speech in May 2017. There are 12 points. It basically says, you know, Iran needs to stop doing everything we don't like it doing, which is essentially not going to happen. Iran's not going to do that. So, uh, you know, if the Iranians were smart, they would uh, take Trump up on his uh, talks uh, idea. Uh, and I think they could give themselves a lot more breathing room. But uh, I think uh, I think their ego is going to get in the way. Uh, Reuters is reporting the U.S. has asked the United Nations Security, Security Council to meet on Iran uh, today behind closed doors. Uh, lastly, Adam, uh, when we think about our European partners, uh, do they have any influence on uh, the Trump administration? Uh, not much. Um, you know, they're they're in a they're in a tight spot in that they have been very big advocates for the U.S. to stay in the Iran nuclear deal. Um, they're certainly wary of what's happening. You know, if you look at again, uh, coming back to the tanker attacks, I think you could be forgiven for seeing a message in those is that a Norwegian tanker was um, hit in both of those Um uh, you know, there's an, an initial round of tanker attacks and there was a second round of tanker attacks and a Norwegian tanker got um, a limpet mine on its hole in both of those. And listen, you know, if again, if you buy um, CENTCOM's argument that Iran was responsible for these, you could be forgiven for seeing a message into these, which is consistent with what Iran has said openly, which is that, you know, don't think you're going to be left out of this Europe. Is that this isn't just a uh, Iran is mad at the United States issue. Um, you know, we're mad at you too. And don't think that just because you play good cop to uh, America's bad cop doesn't mean you're going to uh, escape being on our naughty list. Um, you know, they're going to be necessarily um, 
you know, I don't think there's any doubts in the minds of a lot of European allies, regardless of what they say in public, that Iran is responsible for a lot of this stuff uh, that's been going on, whether it's the tanker attacks or, uh, uh, you know, the drone downing stuff. Um, but uh, I think they're definitely going to be wary of signing on a little bit too publicly because, you know, they they don't necessarily know what the United States is going to do with that. Adam Ronsley is reporter for The Daily Beast. We're going to tweet out some links to his stories at Where We Live. Adam, thanks for joining us today via Skype. Thanks so much. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, after the break, we're going to shift back to Connecticut into a story making national news, a statewide policy that permits transgender female athletes to compete against biological girls is the focus of a discrimination complaint. Hartford Current sports writer Lori Riley will join us to explain, and you can too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In recent years, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, which governs high school sports, approved a policy allowing athletes to compete in sports corresponding with their gender identity. Now three high school students have filed a complaint seeking to reverse the statewide transgender athlete policy. To explain, joining uh, me in studio is Lori Riley. She's sports writer for the Hartford Current. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, tell us first, uh, what is the statewide athletic policy or athlete policy, and what prompted it? Well, basically, the CIAC follows state law. So, um, and state law, you know, prohibits um, discrimination against transgender individuals. So that's that's the bottom line. Um, what happened was when these girls, uh, the transgender girls started competing in track, um, because they identify as female, they were allowed to compete in girls' track because they identify as female, and that's the state law. So that's they basically follow state policy, and that's I don't know that it's necessarily their policy, but that it's I mean I guess it is, but um, but it's state policy. So this was under uh, the former governor Malloy's administration, where uh, this anti-discrimination law went into effect, and that's why the uh, Connecticut Interschool Inter uh, let me get the acronym right, the Interscholastic Athletic Conference, then uh, instituted this policy to be in line with that state law. Right. I mean that that was I believe it was originally um, the bathroom bills were what originally started mm-hmm. you know the whole issue. So I think that's. That's when they decided to put the law into effect, uh, the state law. So uh, you had mentioned that it were uh, was two uh, transgender female athletes who started competing in 2017 and winning. Uh, that really prompted uh, some other uh, families to be upset because uh, their children were not uh, placing as high as they used to be. And one of those uh, three uh, students actually has uh, made their themselves public and talked about it. We actually have a clip from uh, Tucker Carlson. Where this is a Connecticut high school athlete, Selena Soul who said that uh, since filing the complaint, she's felt supported by her peers, but also has experienced some retaliation. I've gotten nothing but support from my teammates and from other athletes, but I have experienced some retaliation from school officials and coaches. Oh, tell, tell us, what, what, did, what kind of retaliation? I've gotten some very difficult requests for me to complete in practice. And if I don't fulfill these requests, then I can't compete at all. 
Again, that's Selena Soul, uh, one of three students. This uh, complaint has been uh, filed uh, uh, for. And so who's going to be hearing this complaint and deciding whether this, this policy uh, should remain in effect? Well, I believe, I mean, they filed the complaint with the Office, uh, the office of Civil Rights in Boston. So the OCR um, will be, you know, looking into this. Um, from my understanding, the CIAC already spoke. I don't know if they spoke to the Office of Civil Rights in Boston, but they already vetted this policy when they did, you know, put it into effect. So um, and I'm not sure how long, you know, the, the investigation is going to take. Um, I, I really don't know about that. And when we think about uh, Connecticut's policy, you know, is it is it unique or how many states have policies that um, allow uh, students uh, to participate in a sport based on their gender identity? I believe it's 13 states. Um, I know, I'm pretty sure it's most of the New England states allow that. Um, and then there's a handful of states that, you know, don't have any policy. And then there's a handful of states, or then there's a number of states that have people compete where they're, with their birth um, identity, their birth gender identity. Um, so that, and that, that's a very interesting thing because that also brings up a whole nother can of worms. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the, the uh, wrestler in Texas. Yeah, was, tell us about that. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. It was a high school wrestler in Texas, um, transgender uh, male, was a female at birth, um, competed with, uh, or wanted to compete with males, and was not allowed to because he was considered a female at birth. So he had to compete with against female wrestlers. And nobody wanted that. <laughs> and and this person was taking testosterone. And, and so there you have the problem where the people that say, oh, you know, people should compete at, on their birth, at their birth identity. But then, you know, they had all this backlash from the, from this case in Texas. So uh, there's no good answer. I mean, and, and there's been other, you know, people have said, oh, we should have a policy of um, people should be, you know, there should be a separate division and, you know, that, uh, but that's discrimination. So, I mean, it's really, it, it's really, it, it's not an easy thing for people to figure out, obviously, because I think we would have probably figured it out by now if, uh, if, the, if it was. Lloyd Riley is a sports writer for the Hartford Current. Again, we're learning uh, more about uh, this discrimination complaint filed in Connecticut um, seeking to reverse a statewide policy that allows uh, transgender athletes uh, to compete in uh, sports related to their gender identity versus their biological sex. Uh, so you've um, been doing some reporting on this. You talked actually with a former federal prosecutor, uh, Felice Duffy, mm -hmm. uh, who filed a Title IX complaint at UConn while a student back in 79. Um, and uh, the prosecutor Prosecutor, former prosecutor said that this complaint may have some merit. Tell us about that. Yeah, she, um, I just want to look at my notes here. She said that basically um, it disadvantages, we have cisgender females, cisgender males, and it basically disadvantages the cisgender females, and it doesn't disadvantage cisgender males. So you could argue that it could be a Title IX complaint because of that very, you know, that, that part of it. Um, but she also thought that there should be some kind of, you know, and I, I agree with her about this. There should be some kind of policy, not policy, but some kind of like panel convened or a bunch of, you know, maybe uh, athletes, maybe, um, you know, transgender kids, maybe cisgender kids, uh, coaches, and everybody should probably get together and talk about this because I really feel that that's maybe one of the things that are that is lacking here, that people are kind of shouting at each other across the aisle and there's not, and I know the CIAC has done some um, 
so a few things with this, but um, I, I just feel like there should be something publicly convened that people should be able to, you know, just learn about it and talk about it. Mm -hmm. This is getting a lot of national news, uh, Lori. So when you talk about this panel that should convene uh, to find some kind of solution, is that something that uh, the state, uh, again, sports uh, authority that governs high school athletics is thinking about? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, You'd also mentioned cisgender, so we should uh, explain. So that is when yes. someone uh, identifies with their biological sex. Yes, right? correct. Sorry. And then uh, we're, we're talking about uh, the complainants, but what about uh, the two uh, athletes that are um, the focus of this complaint? Tell us about them and what their response has been. Um, I know they both responded the other day through the ACLU. Um, I have not talked to either athlete uh, within the last week or so, but... Um, they are obviously, you know, I, I just feel really bad for them that they are in this position that they have to, you know, there's a policy, they're following all the rules. You know, the rules say they can do this, they can compete as, as females. And, you know, to get all this backlash against these two kids who are 17, 16, 17 years old is just, to me, just, you know, not, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just feel bad uh, for them to have to go through this. On the other hand, you know, I feel like they're, you know, it, they're trailblazers, whether they want to be or not. And I, I feel that this is going to, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg for this. I mean, this is going to start happening in, you know, now it's happening in track. There there are going to be other sports. What What if it happens in basketball? You know, what if it happens in softball? What if it, and people are going to, you know, it, it, there's going to have to be some sort of, you know, I, I don't know if it, if the policy that they have right now is going to continue or it, people are just going to have to talk about it, mm. I think. Uh, often uh, when you see students that become elite, elite athletes, you know, they want to then continue to pursue this sport in college. So I'm curious how, uh, what the policies are, uh, whether we're talking about the USA track and field or the NCAA. The NCAA has a policy that you have to, if you are a transgender female athlete, you have to be on a year of hormone therapy. It has to be documented um, before you are allowed to compete. So that, you know, that that's their policy. And I'm not sure as it gets higher up, it's it, I the policies are a little bit different, but there's they're sort of similar. So you have to have that hormone therapy in order to, you know, and, and your horm and your testosterone, I believe, has to be at a certain level. I think that's what they do. And in Connecticut, uh, if someone's under the age of sixteen, he or she cannot have hormone therapy. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, when I talk about this uh, discrimination complaint, uh, the uh, those that have filed it aren't just seeking to reverse uh, the statewide policy just because, but they feel like they are going to be shut out of college scholarships. Right. So I'm wondering when you talk to coaches, uh, uh, whether someone is able to go to like states or not, uh, when people are looking to recruit, what are they looking at exactly? That they've competed at this championship level or they're looking at their specific times? Well, they are looking at times. Um, the problem is if you don't get to that championship level, then it, it, let's, I mean, I talked to a couple of college coaches and they all said, yes, we're looking at times. Um, we're aware of these kids, you know, and, and it depends on the level you're at too. I mean, if you're talking in division three, they're aware of the kids that are maybe the 10th through 20th place. Or if you're talking higher, you know, division one schools, then they're, you know, then they're going to be looking at the, maybe the little bit better kids. Um, the problem becomes when you, there are, say, you know, six slots or eight slots for these kids to go from the Class M meet to the, to the state open and then the state open to the New Englands. 
So if you're, they're saying they're getting shut out of these slots. So there's maybe two slots that, you know, there's two cisgender females that could have gone to the state opener to the New England's. That's that's the dilemma right there because they're what they're saying is the college coaches aren't seeing them at the New England's and they're also not getting the chance to compete against better kids, which means you're going to be faster. Mm-hmm. So, Lori Riley again is a sports writer for the Hartford Current. I, I assume you'll be continuing to cover this story oh, yeah. in the weeks <laughs> ahead. But we appreciate you coming on to explain uh, to us uh, really the backstory uh, behind this discrimination complaint. So, Lori, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Connecticut Public Radio's Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, this note for tomorrow, we're actually focusing, uh, continuing to focus on sports. The Women's World Cup is underway in France as national teams compete for soccer's top prize. So tomorrow we're going to take a look at how the U.S. women's national team has become an international powerhouse. And we'll talk about how women's sports have fought to gain recognition and uh, be found worthy of wider coverage. Have you been watching the Women's World Cup? You can join our conversation. That's tomorrow. Now, after the break, uh, we know the governor has plenty of bills on his desk that must be signed before they become laws. We'll check in on the status of one of them, a bill that would allow Connecticut teens to get HIV prevention medication without parental consent. Uh, WMPR's healthcare reporter Nicole Leonard will join us with that story. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, we know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app. And you can also follow us on Instagram. Just search at WNPR. Now, one of the bills on Governor Lamont's desk would grant Connecticut teens the ability to access PrEP. It's an HIV prevention medication without parental consent. WNPR's Nicole Leonard joins us now with some background on this bill. She's healthcare reporter for WNPR Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, welcome back. Yes, thanks for having me. Good morning. We've talked about PrEP before. So again, explain to us um, how it works and why supporters of the bill lobbied it for, for this session. Yeah, PrEP, like you said, it's it's actually, it stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, but we call it PrEP because that's easier. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's a daily pill, sort of people have been um, comparing it to uh, birth control in the way that it's uh, taken, oral birth control. So you take it once a day um, and it's a, up to 90% effective in um, preventing somebody from contracting HIV if they're exposed to it. So you really have to take the medication daily. You have to take it as prescribed. So the more the better you do that, the more effective it's going to be. Um, and they approved it for adults back in 2012. And most recently, just last year, the FDA approved it for use in minors. So people were really excited when that happened because now, um, you know, more there's more reports and studies showing that this can be effective for teenagers mm-hmm. as well. And that's important when you look at while uh, the rate of new HIV infections has gone down dramatically in the United States. Uh, People are still contracting uh, the infection, and it's young people that are among the highest risk factors. Yeah, yeah, and and you know when we talk about minors, it's eight, it's under eighteen. So there uh, were a few cases in Connecticut. The the latest um, numbers were from twenty seventeen, and there was a small number of cases for the that minor group. But the, these are still the youngest. Um, 
people who are getting contracted. The next age group, which is young adults, which is the 20 to 29 range, that's when we see the most cases appear in. And some of those people have gotten HIV when they were teens and they didn't diagnose it until they were in their early 20s, perhaps. So You mentioned this bill got strong bipartisan support. Uh, why, why was that? It, they actually tried to pass this in previous le- legislative sessions. Uh, uh, what I've been told is the big sticking point is as to why there was so much opposition in the past was that the FDA d- had not approved it for use in minors, even though it what you know doctors were prescribing it for minors uh, with parental consent in places. So once they got that uh, FDA approval, it seems like everyone, a lot of people who were opposed to it before, jumped on board this year. So, And this is also a, a bill that wouldn't require any state funding. No, they did not ask for state funding, which is pointed out in multiple public hearings. Um, there is no, they were not asking for state funding. It's simply a, 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 cha- a change or an amendment to an existing policy uh, around what minors can consent to uh, by themselves when it comes to health care. Uh, in your uh, report, uh, you mentioned that in general, minors can't make medical decisions without a parent or guardian's involvement. Uh, state and federal laws have made some exceptions, including for the testing and treatment of sexually transmitted diseases. When we talk about PrEP, that's a, a gray area because uh, given there's no testing or no treatment, it's a preventative medication. Can you talk more about that? It, it, some some federal and state laws, it, it really varies where you live. Um most minors can't make, like you said, medical decisions for themselves. And that was put in place with good intentions because minors may not know what they're consenting to or some serious medical services, treatments, surgeries. You do want somebody who's older, um, like a parent or a guardian, to oversee that. But there have been exceptions made more so for um, sexual services and reproductive services and care. Um, that's really where the exceptions fall into. And and in that um, is, uh, in a lot of places, including in Connecticut, is for STD testing and STD treatment if you're diagnosed with um, an infection or something like HIV. Um, but there's no in-between. So PrEP, is not a testing mechanism, and it's not a treatment for somebody who already has HIV. So it's there's no policies that are sort of clearly outlining where this falls. Uh, now, Nicole Leonard, again, is healthcare reporter for WNPR Connecticut Public Radio. We're learning about one of the bills on Governor Lamont's desk that would allow uh, Connecticut teens without parental consent uh, to access uh, PrEP, uh, which would help prevent uh, HIV, new HIV infections. You interviewed a couple of young people, uh, both from New Haven. Tell us about them. I interviewed two young men. Um, their names are Sam and Jesus, um, and uh, they're now in their early 20s. And they were both exploring their sexuality when they were in middle school and high school, as uh, many teens do. And eventually they came to the conclusion that they um, were gay. Um, But unfortunately, their families and and for different reasons, they were very scared to tell their families or they knew that they were going to possibly not be accepted by their families. Um, and, and which proved to be true, actually, later. Both of them do not have relationships with one of their parents because of who they are. Um, but because of this, it made them uncomfortable and scared to talk about their parents, about sex mm-hmm. and potentially preventative services like mm-hmm. uh, PrEP. 
And so um, one of the gentlemen, Sam, he actually um, he actually describes this really well, uh, talking about what it's like to go through this at a young age. As a young gay person, there's like so many things on your plate. Coming out to your parents, coming out to your friends, who like who's gonna find out? Who's gonna like see my Tumblr? Who's gonna like what's gonna happen? Am I gonna get like HIV? Like whatever. The medication takes one very big thing off your plate and kind of keeps you safe. And so we heard Sam talk about that. But unfortunately, Sam never got access to PrEP, even after he approached his doctor and sort of uh, with his sexual activity. um, He never got access to it. And right before he graduated high school, he was diagnosed with HIV. You mentioned that he talked to his doctor. Uh, His physician didn't even know what PrEP was. Yes, that's what he said. Um, And this was back a couple years ago. Sam's actually uh, close to graduating um, college now. So, yeah, even though it's been on the market prep since 2012 for adults, especially for possibly doctors who are treating a much younger demographic, they might not have been exposed to this medication or not been completely aware about it. So one of the things with this bill and with this movement is to try and increase that awareness, not just to the general public, but also within the health community, getting doctors who are treating adolescents and teens to know this is an option, to know when this might be good to prescribe or suggest to their patient and um, and and so they can avoid something. What happened to Sam was that he missed out on an opportunity to get access to this medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody is on board uh, with this idea of allowing uh, Connecticut teens without parental uh, consent again uh, to access PrEP. Uh, you heard from some of the opponents of the bill. Uh, what did they have to say? Uh, most of them were... Um, upset about the fact that their child or a minor child might be able to make a medical decision as serious as taking a daily medication without their knowledge, without their consent, without talking to them. And parents do. A lot of parents want to be involved with their kids, not because they, you know, want to completely control what their kids are doing, but they do want to be involved for their welfare. Um, uh, But unfortunately, you know, this is something that they don't think that um, minors should be able to consent to on their own. Um, This is what one mother had to say when she testified in February against this bill uh, and what others, uh, what it had to do with the medical treatment for minors. I have excellent relationships with my children. They are open with me. And while I understand there are children here that don't feel comfortable talking to their parents, I should not be punished because I have done what I need to do as a parent to have my children have these types of relationships with me, that they're happy to speak with me about such intimate matters as sex and drugs and drinking and things that teens face. Well, what's really interesting when you hear that particular parent say uh, that she doesn't want to be punished, uh, you had mentioned uh, both earlier Sam and another gentleman uh, from New Haven, a young man, um, said that you know they didn't have uh, that privilege and that comfort level to speak to their family about who they are. And uh, so I just think it's really interesting to hear that that parent say that you know she's lucky, and so this probably does not need to be something that needs to be ha- happened for a lot of other parents. Yeah, and it's good to point out too that a lot of the uh, physicians that testified, and also even the advocates, even the two young men that I um, testified, they do very much encourage doctors to um, say, well, 
why why don't we involve your parent? They really try and push, you know, have that conversation about why the parent's not involved. And maybe they could get to a point where they're like, maybe we are okay with involving mom, dad, or mm-hmm. a guardian. That's definitely something they want to talk to their, um, their young patients about. But uh, some patients do not have that option. And, and if they don't, they won't be able to access uh, PrEP. And Jesus Morales-Sanchez is uh, another one of those uh, young men that you spoke to uh, where that was his reality. I could have like been in a really, really difficult situation. I mean, not even just HIV. It could have been like so many other things. And it, it is unfortunately what happens when teens don't feel comfortable, don't have an adult that they can reach out to and say, I'm having these questions, I'm having these doubts, and I want to explore my sexuality, and they don't know how to do it in a healthy manner. Mm. Uh, We mentioned this bill is on the governor's desk. Uh, Do we think that it will be signed? What are you hearing? I know there's a lot of hope that it will be signed, especially among supporters. And it did get such strong bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. Actually, the Senate almost unanimously, shy of one vote, voted this uh, through. So it seems to have a lot of support. So people are hoping that Governor Ned Lamont does sign this soon. Um, There are a couple states in the country, uh, about 16 in 2017, that do allow these things, minors to consent to uh, this treatment, this medication in particular. Connecticut would be leading in the New England area. It doesn't seem like other states uh, up here have this area carved out quite yet. Um, So so borders are definitely hoping it goes through. It's not a perfect bill because it doesn't address the things of cost. This is still a costly medication. Um, So teens would have to figure out either how to pay for it themselves or if they wanted it involved their insurance, which is most of the time under their parents' insurance, um, they would have to figure out how to navigate that if they really do want to conceal that they are taking this medication from their parents. Nicole Leonard, again, is healthcare reporter for WMPR Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, thanks as always for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, special thanks to WMPR intern Jesse Steinmetz. Also, our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.